This morning we're actually starting a new sermon series. It won't be long. It's a, a kind of for a couple winter months. Leadership in the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of, of Christ, or meaning leadership among God's people. And we're going to look at different examples of when uh, God had leaders uh, lead his people. And so we're looking at Moses today. I originally titled this The Request of Moses. I, I kind of thought of a new title that I, I would prefer. It's too late to change it on the screen. But, but it's Moses Argues with God. So that's what we're going to talk about, how this, this discussion that Moses and God have. Um, I want to start, though, by I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And oftentimes they'll have books, people who just wrote a book come on. And, and so the, the newest one I listened to and got caught my attention so much I bought the book. It's called The Great, de- de- the Great De-Churching. And it makes a contention. It says that we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the United States history. Maybe if you're one of the teenagers, you guys learn about the Great Awakening. Do they still talk about that in history class? There's the first and second Great Awakening. It happened in the early... The first one was in colonial history. The second Great Awakening was in early American history. And that, that is, in a sense, how uh, the, America got Christianified um, in those two Great Awakenings when people started going to church more. Uh, and they were big movements, enough so that it's a major part of U.S. history classes usually, or at least it used to be. Um, so you have the Great Awakenings, the, the Great Deturching. Here's the contention. It says, the first and great... Um, Set, uh, the, it is greater than, the, the shift is greater than the first and great, first and second great awakening and every revival since um, combined, but in the opposite direction. Over 40 million people have stopped going to church in the last 25 to 30 years. That's a huge change in, in the, uh, the regularity. It used to be most people went to a Christian church. And now, attendance is far, far less. Um, and, and as I was going through it, the thing that struck me is listening to the podcast, he says, most of the time they actually leave for boring reasons. You might hear about, and I, I kind of pay attention to those who, who've been affected in a negative way, and they, they're de-churched because of that, but he says, most actually leave for boring reasons. And so they talk about the, the casually de-churched, says some families prioritize children's sports and other activities that increasingly happen on Sundays. Then there are those who stopped attending church during COVID-19. They develop new Sunday rhythms and now prefer those new activities over Sunday morning worship. We call all this group the casually de-churched. And so it mentions COVID, though. It says this this trend was happening before COVID, and COVID only accelerated it for a little bit. It says there are others who are... They call them de-church casualties. Some in this group are victims of pastoral malpractice. And some are victims of the draw of the world and the flesh. We call this group the de-church casualties. Those are those who leave the church intentionally and something went wrong. They, they got affected and oftentimes they're speaking against, you know, the evangelical church. Where the, it says, but the larger group are those who just sort of drifted away. For casual reasons. 
at the same time, I think we're going through, I mean, I think you see this shift in, in young people and how they're facing life. Life is different for teenagers from the, the current teens to those who are young adults. They, they grew up different. The, another podcast book I listen to is called The Anxious Generation. It's actually from a secular social psychologist. And a few of us were talking about this podcast where he realized these kids grew up, they grew up especially with these in their hands. And it's changed how they view themselves and how they view relationships. They're, they're, he calls them the anxious generation because mental health is the, 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 the way they see life. It's, everything's a struggle with that. And that's going on. And maybe you know young people who I'd, I'd be curious to get some of their input. Is that, does that capture what it is? is? Is everyone struggling with all these, these mental health issues? Um, and then... What we see is in this group, the Generation Z, so many are those who are not a part of a religious community. One of the most important things we do that that bolster our mental health, apart from believing in God, is just being a part of a community like this. And the young people of today, I think, have been shortchanged. They don't trust the older generation's adults because they've been shortchanged. They, they got shortchanged in COVID with their education and, and the things they're going through. It has been a tough time. It is the challenge of our generation, the church in the U.S., to deal with this. What will that look like? I think we're facing a, a steep challenge as a, as a church. How do we pass on the grace of Jesus Christ to this next generation? How do we continue to function? The, the guys who wrote this, Ryan DeBurge is one of them. He says, get ready to close a lot of churches if these stats continue. Because that's where it's heading. The people of God in Exodus faced incredible challenges. And that's what we're going to talk about with this conversation between God and Moses. They were leaving Egypt, uh, had left Egypt by Moses' leadership. God brought them out. You might know that story. The ten plagues. God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He was taking them towards the promised land. And there in between, he met with them at Mount Sinai. And that's when they made a covenant between God and the people of Israel. And God gave them the Ten Commandments. And all this stuff was going on. So their, their, their future is they're going to head into the promised land where they'll have all these challenges to, to, to do this. And, and God had chosen them to be his people that they would represent among all the nations on earth. That the people of Israel would represent God and he would give them a land and be their God. It was not going well. They, they kept grumbling against God. They kept saying, you know, I remember how great it was back in Egypt. You mean like when you were a slave? Like they, they, they everything, they, they just kept grumbling. God says they were stiff-necked. They didn't want to listen to God, what he was doing. They didn't want to change the things that they'd grown up with. Um, and then, so our readings from Exodus 33, the chapter right before is Exodus 32, and and then they decide Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, getting instructions, and he seems to be gone a little while. And they say, you know what we need to do? 
we need to get some gold and silver and make ourselves like a, a, a statue of a baby cow, right? That's what we really need. That's the thing we're missing. And so that's what they do. They make a golden calf out of, you know, all, all the, the jewelry they have, and they use that, and then they, they start dancing and singing. They have a big party around the golden calf, and then what they say is about the golden calf, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They, they had seen God, God's presence in the cloud of fire, and the, uh, bring them out, lead them out of Egypt. Lead, and then, so they're giving credit to the stupid golden calf. What's going on? God is furious. He's like, how, you know, actually, in 32, God is ready to wipe out the people of Israel. and says to Moses, how about I just get rid of them and we'll start over again with you and your, your family. Moses says, no, don't do that, God. Stick with us. And so instead, Moses comes down, he deals with the situation, and, and so they, that, that is the context for this, this serious conversation that God and Moses have, that golden calf incident that just hap- happened, and God comes to Moses and says, there is something you and I need to talk about, because we are having, this isn't working very well. And so God says, suggests this says, instead of me going with you, I will send a warrior angel, and he will drive out the nations before you. In other words, he'll deal with these enemies you have to worry about, and he, he'll give you, you'll get the promised land, you know, a good land flowing with milk and honey, um, but here's the deal, I'm not going to go with you. My presence will not go in your midst. Because if I go with you, you guys are going to do something stupid, like with that golden calf thing, and I'm just going to consume you because you're, you're all so stiff-necked. And God is kind of giving them an out. They'll still get the promised land. That, that's the key. They'll still get the land. Isn't that what people want? They want their own land? You know, you'll still get your land. It'll be a good land, flowing with milk and honey honey and all that, but you will no longer be my covenant people, my chosen people. You will, you will no longer represent me, God, to the rest of the nations. When the people hear this, think about it. They, they're going to get their land. You know, God's even going to deal with all their enemies preemptively. It's going to be easy. Sounds like, sounds good. They could have said, yeah, all right, we'll take you up on that deal. Instead, it says, this is a disastrous word. And they mourn what God had said. As much as they had wrestled with God and argued with him. By the way, the, the, the Israel means one who wrestles with God. It's built into their name. One who art, struggles with God. They still wanted God to be their God and for them to be his people. They were brokenhearted over this idea that God's presence would not go with them into the land. So that's interesting. And so in verse 7, 7 to 11, it switches gears. It's kind of an aside. So you get the situation. Verse 7 to 11 tells you the way God and Moses would communicate. And so it goes how, how Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside. So how they would have a tent outside the camp. Moses would go out there. The cloud of God's presence would come down upon the tent. 
and Moses with God would talk with one another. And God, and so God would, would visibly show that he and Moses were having this conversation. That way the people would know the same God who led them out of Egypt, who led them through the Red Sea, that same God is still with them, conversing with Moses. He was still in their midst. That's why it's, it's giving this, this breakdown. And that Moses is, is still in conversation. So it's, it's a side point of the story, making sure that people know up to this point, God's presence had been with them. And I love what it says. It says, um, it says that Moses would talk with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend thinking about the, the leadership of God, that that's, that's in a sense what it takes to be a leader in the kingdom is have that relationship with God that you're hearing from God. and you're, you're not leading by your own wisdom. You're leading by God's direction. What I want, to, I want you to know is that through Christ, this is on offer for any who want to seek him. John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. Because everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. I think Jesus is directly pointing in that verse to the kind of relationship Moses had with God. He's saying that as we walk with Jesus, as we follow as his disciple, we might start off as a servant. You know, we call Jesus Lord. And, you know, he's the... He's the master, we're the servant, but he includes us in his counsels. He includes us in his business. And, and I don't think we're just handed a friendship with, with the Savior. I think it develops. Friendship is inherently two ways, isn't it? But as you respond to Christ and you learn to walk with him, it does become a friendship. I think it's a picture of what we can have with God if we are following him and following his lead. So that is, so 7-11 is the side. It describes the conversation process. And then verse 12, it goes back to the situation. And now Moses argues with God. So God had issued his edict in the first six verses. You know, I'll send an angel before you. I won't go with you. And now Moses is going to argue with God and make the case why God should go with them to the promised land, why he should not abandon them. And he uses, he makes three particular arguments. And what I love in this is Moses really is arguing with God and God doesn't say, how dare you mere mortal, you know, question me. How dare you argue with me? God is delighted that Moses is pushing back. Isn't that interesting? That, that God is not, we don't offend God when we come to God and we, we bring our, our thoughts to him. He wants that kind of... He wants his people to be those who wrestle with him. That's a picture of that, that relationship we have in prayer. So, he makes three arguments in this prayer. One is for God to maintain the relationship, the favor that Moses already has with God. He, he says a couple times, you know, you have found... You've said to me that you found favor in my sight. You know, if I have found favor in your sight... The, the, another word for favor, unmerited favor, is called grace. Right? God has, has chosen Moses and the people of Israel 
and they have received grace. And God and Moses is saying, God, don't give up on us. Don't, don't, don't give up on us now. I know we screwed up. I know we don't deserve it. But, but stay with us anyways. We've found favor with you in the past. May we continue to find favor with you. May I continue to find favor with you. The second argument he makes is he says, show me your ways. Moses is asking God that he might learn God's ways and so lead the people to do what is right. God, you've got to show us how to be your people. Because obviously we don't know how to do it. There, there is a big dichotomy between what, what you are and what we are. We know, God, that you're holy beyond our, our imaginings. And, and to be holy means to be a, a part, set, set apart, other, right? God is not like the things of this world. He's not like the gods that this world offers. God is holy, holy, holy. He is beyond and transcendent. And so Moses is saying, Lord, show us your ways that I, that I may know how to lead this people and, and show them how to follow you. And then the third argument he makes is, God, you've called us your people, and it is your presence that makes us distinct. If you don't go with us, then how would it be that we would be your people? Right? If your presence is not in our midst, we're just like all the other nations that have their own land. We need you to be with them. We want to be your people. We want your presence to be in our midst. Um, we can't do it without you. Lord, be with us. And so on behalf of the people and for himself, Moses is saying, God, we need you. Don't, don't give up on us. May we be your people. In verse 17, actually, God says it twice. God, God is persuaded. Was he that hard to convince? Is it possible God wanted to be convinced all along? In fact, in verse 14, God is already assenting. He says, in verse 14, he says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses keeps arguing. He makes his other two points. Um, and then in verse 17, says, All right, Moses. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Yes, I will go with you. He agrees. He actually goes on from there to even show his presence to Moses in a special way. But that's, that's, that's a separate. What I find interesting is, like, what's going on in this, this whole thing? I would suggest that God was giving the people of Israel an out. Right? He had made this covenant with them. He had done all these things for them with the idea that they would be his people. And what we're seeing here is God giving them an out. Do you really want to be my people? Do you really want what I'm offering? Jesus does the same thing for his disciples. In John 6, it talks about how the, the crowds, when they found out Jesus wasn't just going to give them bread every day, some of them walk away. And at the end of that, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do you guys want to take off too? And I love this line by, by one of his disciples, Peter. He says, Lord, to whom else should we go? We know that you have the words of eternal life. 
So Jesus gave his disciples an out, and they stuck with him, just like God was giving the people of Israel an out, and they said, no, we want, we want to be your people. We want to walk with you. So as I think about what does this mean for us, think about the offer that, that God's making. He's offering to bless them, give them their land, even though they won't have his presence. What if God made you an offer like this? What if he offered to bless your life? You would live to old age in good health. Things will go well. You'll be prosperous and successful. Everything you set your hand to will will go your way. No enemy will be able to oppose you. Just things will go well, but you won't have his presence. Would you take that offer? And it leads us to this question. Are you seeking God in your life, his presence? Or are you just seeking God's blessing for your life? So many, I think, are really just seeking God's blessing. They want God to make things go well in their life. But they don't really want God, his presence, his spirit. They don't really want to do that part of it. They just want to be blessed. Give that some thought. What if God made you that offer? Would you take it? Now let's think about it as a church. What if God made us this offer, God's blessing, but not his presence? What if God said to us, all right, I'm going to bless East Glenville Church. You're going to grow in numbers. The money will flow in. You'll, you'll meet your capital campaign in the first, first week. Um, you know, you'll have favor with people. The, the town will always, you know, vote to let you, you know, put up whatever sign you want. Um, you know, he'll protect us from harm and nothing bad will ever happen. You will never have your, a problem with your septic system ever again. And you'll, most of all, you'll have a dynamic and incredible looking pastor. But. My presence won't be there. Would we take it? No. We're here because he's here. We're here because his presence. We're seeking him. When we come to worship, we just don't want to be a social club that's, you know, good fellowship. We want the good fellowship. And we have dinners and, and you know, do stuff together. And indoor Olympics, I guess, you know, we'll see how that goes. You know, but... We want that kind of, and that is the point of the Indoor Olympics, is, is that men would actually get to know each other and have fellowship. But we want so much more. We want God's presence, a part of us. Um, we want to say, right, we want to be a chosen race. God, you've made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that we can proclaim how excellent you are. Because you are worthy of our worship, and we want to declare that praise among the nations. Friends, I'm convinced God has called us together as his people. We are people who've received grace. We know we don't deserve it. We're just like Israel in so many ways. We know we don't deserve it, but he's with us anyways. And so we're going to worship no other God. We're, we're like Moses, all right, Lord? You've got to teach us your ways. We know we need to grow. Um, we know that we're not, you know, n- no perfect people allowed in the sense. We all come with baggage when we come here. God has called us anyways, 
and whatever baggage we have, we're going to ask God to be at work at in our lives. Um, we want to belong to God. There are three things I want us to keep central in our focus, all based on this as a church. And, and the first one is simply this. Love for God is our number one task. He is, it's his presence that we, we want in, in the midst of our work. That's why worship is, is really our central activity for the, for the week. Um, it's not just social activities. It's not programs. We, we want to have a good building. That's why we want to do this project. We want to make sure it's warm or cool in the summer. We want to make sure it's welcoming. And so we know we need to do some work on it. But it's not the building. We're not trying to build the most magnificent cathedral to draw people here. It is his spirit filling what we, we are doing that matters most to us. Love for God is number one. What, what do we want people to say about East Glenville? Those people know Jesus. Right? There's something different about them. It's not just another social club. Those people have something in them. We may not know what. But they know there's something here. And that something is God's presence filling us. So, so that's first, number one. Number two, that we would have lives marked by Christ, which means we are undergoing spiritual transformation. That we, like Moses, would say, Lord, teach us your ways. Show us your ways. We know we're not perfect, but we want to be growing towards Christ-likeness. And I, I, was think, I was thinking almost two different aspects of this, captured by two different words. One I already used, spiritual transformation. The other word we sometimes use is discipleship. We talked about that in our, our one adult Sunday school class. Discipleship is, means we learn as a student. And so part of this lives marked by, by Christ is that we become a disciple. We learn and we seek to grow. Um, it's John 6, 6, where Peter says, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we are learning, and we're applying it, and we're seeking to grow. There's another aspect, though, that is not, it's, it's, it's beyond us in a sense, because no matter how much we learn and grow, we still have the sinful nature. We need his help. We need his spirit to be in us. And so in Galatians 2.20, it talks about how I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Spiritual transformation is his life being lived within us. It's more than just us as a student. It's a spiritual transformation. Now, there's, that's a whole sermon in and of itself, so I don't want to throw too much at you, but I... There's just so much to this, and that's what we're seeking. That's what needs to happen, and we want to keep that central. The third aspect is that we have been called together to share his grace, to share the, the good news of Christ with the world. Right? He's called us together for his purposes. And the together is, I think I might even have that underlined somewhere. Right? We're called together because it's, it's, it's not something we do on our own. God brings us with this, this purpose of making known the message of Christ to those who need it. We know we are living in an anxious generation where there's a mental health crisis, not just among teens. There's people who feel lost 
And, and they, more than anything else, need the grace of Christ. And I believe God has us here as a place where people can find that grace. The other, I didn't mention this one earlier, but there, the other thing that I keep hearing about is the loneliness epidemic. This applies to all people of all ages. People need a place to connect with others. And this can be that place as we work together. The, the guy that wrote this book, as I was listening to him, he talks about the benefits of actual religious attendance and, and involvement. And he says the, the, the statistics, like the mental health statistics that come from the fellowship that, that Christians have, the interactions, the social, it has to be in person. It, it, you know, these don't get conferred just you know, by watching a speaker on YouTube. Right? It's, it's that personal connection. He says it's the horizontal relationships. Now, we know we have those horizontal relationships because of the vertical relationship. Um, but, but that's a part of what's transforming. So I believe God has us here for that purpose, to make known his grace in all these things. And here's where I, here's where I have worked together underlined. God calls us together even though we're different and we bring different things to the table. So our passage is in Exodus 33. I, I went back just, just to, this is Exodus 31. I think this, I think this is an amazing passage that can easily be overlooked. So God's talking about how he's going to be in their midst. And he says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and it, it goes on. And, and then later God says, And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And so this is talking about how they would make the, 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 the tabernacle, the place of worship. And so God's saying, I've provided the people you need, people who are good at craftsmanship, People who, who are able to, to work in gold and do the art, artistic work to do the, the mission I've called you to do. I have able men within your, your group of Israel that's able to do this. And I will give them the skill and the spirit by which they can do it. I believe God still has done that. He has called people with different skills and gifts and abilities. Some people are... are People of words, like me. Me, use many words, speak good, much talking. Right? Um, I am so glad there are people who maybe are not people of words, but are far better at making or fixing things. And uh, like we have our group of trustees who are looking at you know, the needs of the building. We have other people that, that do the, the tasks that we, we do. Together. We have tech people that are constantly messing with computers and the camera people and the music people who can do all this stuff. We have people who are good work, working with teenagers. We have a little, I was at the youth group this week. We have people who are investing in the lives of teenagers. We have people who are better with, with younger kids and be it in the nursery or the kid venture that has to be postponed because Susan's dealing with some stuff, but, but, but are ministering to the, the young children. All these things. God pulls us together so that all these things can come together in a congregation to, to, serve, to, to serve God and to fulfill the, the purpose. And that's my point this morning. God has called us together.
to do this work. And my invitation is to be a part of it. To, to, for those who've been apart for a long time, I want you to know what we're trying to do. The, these three things. Right? Remember, keep these central. Love for God is our number one task. Um, this is what we're about at EGCC. Love for God is number one task. Number two, that we'd have lives marked by God, that we're undergoing spiritual transformation as we follow Jesus together. Um, and third, that we're, we're called together to make known his grace to, to people that need it. Are you, are you willing to be a part of that? To join in? To, to, to say, yeah, I want that too. That's what we're about at East Glenville Church. Because I believe that the power that we have in, in echoing this verse as a, uh, or echoing this idea as a congregation is great. And so our, our closing song is one that reflects that. It's, it's a song that's not about us individually. It's it's about we the people. So, so one of the verses, we the redeemed shall be strong in purpose and unity, declaring aloud praise and glory. That friends, um, salvation belongs to our God, but we get to declare it together as his people. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that we're not in this alone. You've called us together as your people. We're in fellowship with one another. And we work together for your purposes. But moreover, we're not here alone because your presence is upon us. Your Holy Spirit dwells with us. And we know that you will lead us to where we're going. You will lead us into the land promised to us. And for that, we give you thanks and praise and honor. Amen.